We're going to go into relationship together. And our purpose financially is to be financially solvent, is to save money for emergencies so we feel safe and secure, is to make money to do the things we wish to do. So we're both co-conspirators in that, right? That's our, we have to have a a shared purpose and a shared vision at any moment could be, we want to buy a new house. We want to go on a vacation that we've been waiting to do. We want to invest in, right? But we want to do this, right? That is how couples, all unions have to operate. We constantly have to have a shared purpose, shared goal, and a shared vision for where we're going. Otherwise, we're going to operate in ways that are one person oriented. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Dr. Stan Packen to the show. Dr. Tacken is an incredible thought leader in the field of couples therapy. I've actually had the good fortune to go through two of his three layers, levels of training for couples therapists, and it was game-changing for me. So I'm so honored that he's willing to hop on the podcast today and talk to me a little bit more about his work with couples, his years of experience and insight. And I just know this is going to be a great conversation. So Stan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I love that I'm talking with you. You're outside. You're in Kauai, I think you said. You got the Hawaiian shirt going. This is great. We're vacationing. My wife, Tracy, and I are vacationing in Kauai, which we do every year. It's always a working vacation. So we've been working outside where it's nice and shady and and, uh, Hawaiian music, and we love it. If you have to work somewhere, you might as well work here. That's the great thing about our work. As long as we can take our brains with us and we have a computer, we can pretty much do it just about anywhere we're at, right? That's, that's true. Yes. Uh, hopefully my brain is with me here. <laughs> it may be. I mean, it is Friday, so it's getting on Hawaii time, I suppose. And Now, see, I didn't even know it was Friday. <laughs> well, you're in vacation mode, though, right? So it's just the flow. I know. Of I know it. <laughs> <laughs> You're a prolific author. Let's just name it. You have multiple books out there. You have a new book out called In Each Other's Care. And it sounds like you're working on another writing project. So can you let listeners in on what are you writing about? What's on your mind right now as a thought leader in the field of couples therapy? Well, it's always couples. And if it's not couples, it's basically the human condition. In Each Other's Care was written during the pandemic while I was quarantined with my family and had to make the switch between seeing uh, people in person to online. And the frustrations that actually came out of that time really focused my attention more on social contract theory and social justice theory, and also on another part of the PACT theoretical complex, Marita psychotherapy, 
Japanese form of psychotherapy, which is about being purpose-centered, uh, a purpose-centered life, rather than making arrangements, judgments, decisions based solely on emotion or thoughts. Now, so that, wow. that changed me quite a bit because of the uh, frustration I experienced about the human condition. It caused me to do a deep dive there. Also, a deeper dive into the brain and a concern that if people don't have a structure, don't co-create a structure that is their relationship and along with rules of how they'll govern each other, um, that will be a big problem and that is most likely going to lead to dissolution of the relationship. And the second other big issue I was concerned about, the manner in which we all interact when one or both of us is under stress. And I saw that as the equal concern, immediate concern about getting people out of danger now, instead of spending a lot of time doing what we normally do in person impact. More therapy, this is uh, aimed at thinking, organization, working together, collaboration, cooperation as having to be done now and it can it cannot be put off for a later time. So are you saying kind of the mindset with the urgency of COVID and what was happening is like we don't have three months, six months, 12 months to work them therapeutically through something. We got to get something in place this week. Is that what you're getting at? That's right. Because of the, the nature of couples, when they're insecure functioning, they're on a trajectory towards unhappiness and or disillusion. So uh, since we're concerned with both longevity and happiness, it seemed that this is really important and more important than early family history, more important than simply attachment styles, that this is uh, an existential issue that is facing all couples or any union uh, where there is an expectation of fairness and justice and mutual sensitivity. That fairness and justice piece, you know, my focus with, with the couples I'm working with is around their financial life and helping them develop a financial plan together and, and bringing the art and science of couples therapy into the financial planning practice now. And so fairness and justice issues come up around money all the time. And so there is the attachment history issues and the family of origin issues that are all there. And it's the question in my mind is always, how do we, in, in the planning relationship, it, we don't have week in, week out to affect change. You know, we're going to meet five, six, 12 times and maybe over a year. So I'm curious about what are some of those interventions that you started to come up with that helped insert fairness and justice into the relationship much faster than typically in couples therapy would happen? Well, just go back to the book for a moment. The book focused on my then obsession. And that's basically how I do everything. I obsess on on a particular area of PAC, and that's how I develop ideas. And so during the pandemic, uh, pandemic, I was more focused on the social contract, social justice piece, and the idea of purpose-centered to deal with emotional regulation because of the need of the time. But I think that that need is going to be there no matter what time we're in because of the nature of human nature, right? Human nature right. is such that it's disruptive to relationship. So in the book, I'm basically breaking everything down by complaint, financial being one chapter, but complaints that I would hear in my clinic. And then through a process that repeats itself through every 
chapter of analyzing their conversation in terms of secure functioning and then correcting it, I'm basically saying the same things again and again and again. And that is that the, the solutions are going to be very, very similar regardless of the problem. The problem always seems like it's the content. It seems like it's about money or it's about sex. And though it may be, the problem is that the the subject matter is merely the stressor. The stress is actually the problem in the way we change and the way we operate as either a two-person psychological system of we and us, or whether we revert to a one-person psychological system of I, me, mine, and you, you, you. And that's really the challenge. Can we sustain a collaborative, cooperative relationship and how we do business around stressful matters under the greatest amount of stress, or do we break down very early in the game with the least amount of stress, which is the most common, and then we become too threatening to each other. And so that's the focus here, and that's what's being repeated, that most things can be boiled down to Either the couple never built any structure or, or any culture that was their own, and they're still flying by the seat of their pants. That's one. Two is the manner in which they interact when one or both are under stress. Are they very good at it, or are they so bad at it that they are constantly accruing memory of threatening experiences of injustice, unfairness, resentment, which has a exponential effect and is very hard to reverse. It's doable. Right. It just makes everything harder. Right. So if we kind of, if we just pick a money fight, anyone, let's say the husband's critical of the wife and how much money she's spending at Target, right? That's kind of the content of the money fight and that they're not handling it well. And they haven't created a culture of their own about how to make financial decisions. They haven't put any structure in place. When I hear structure as a financial planner, I'm thinking like, Hey, having a joint financial plan, having a joint spending plan together, it says, here's how much money we're going to spend on Target. We mutually agree on this is what's appropriate. It's not me telling you this is what's appropriate or you saying it, it's we. And so I think you know that language that I learned from PACT that I love is one-person psychological system versus two-person psychological system. And I feel like when we're talking about money, man, it is like one-person psychological systems all day. And systems of equals, and we assume uh, that a, a couple, an adult couple, are, are two adult individuals that are free, autonomous individuals in a symmetrical relationship, unlike childhood, which is asymmetric, and that they're coming together based on terms and conditions, and hopefully not solely on love, right? Although most people solely on love. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a level playing field, because if you and I are on board for a mission, and let's say the mission is marriage, and the mission also has hopefully a purpose to it other than just love, right? We're both going to, we're both going to guarantee each other's absolute safety and security because the world won't, but we can, and we're going to both profit from this union in all the ways we want to, right? As individuals and as a unit. That's a good deal, um, and therefore, we're both mutual stakeholders in this project, right? If that's the understanding, and most of the time it's not explicit, which is a problem, it should be explicit, 
then we're mutual stakeholders. We have the same things to gain and the same things to lose. If we don't, and I see many, many couples that are in the upper 1% in terms of their wealth or celebrity, if they're not on an equal playing field, there's going to be trouble in any union where of equals, right? right. And so that becomes a problem. <laughs> it just does because there's the have not right. and the have. Yes. I, like, I appreciate you naming Like, You work with the top 1%. You work with couples across the wealth spectrum, I, I presume, but you have worked with those couples that are in that top 1% also. And the power balances, I use power balances that there might be other words to use, but they're not, it's not a marriage of equals. They don't see it as a marriage of equals. And this is part of, at least as I under the legacy of insecure functioning is we're marrying because like, I put you on a pedestal or I think I'm better than you and I'm doing you a favor. That's not great, but it's the way a lot of people end up partnering, isn't it? Or I make all the money, therefore I have more rights. Oh, I hear that one all the time, right? Which that's a market-minded perspective. Like, a business economic kind of philosophy is I, because I have the money, I get to be the decision maker. But that doesn't really work well in an, an adult intimate relationship. No, it doesn't. If I don't have anything to lose and you do, I should watch my back because that's not a safe place to be. It's not smart in love relationships. We depend on this idea of being equals unless we've agreed to something other than that. So there are people who do make thoughtful agreements that you have more power than I will, or you will have more power than I will. And if they can do that soberly and articulate as to why that's a good idea for both, I'm fine. That would be secure functioning based on their agreement. But most people don't do that. And if they do it, they do it under duress. I will not marry you unless you sign this prenup. You get nothing. And then, or maybe if, if I'll test you for five years and if you are good enough, then maybe I will tear up the prenup. So there are all sorts of arrangements people will make and will justify. But in the area of love relationships, longevity and happiness, I don't know of a system that can maintain happiness with the idea that I have less power authority than you because you have more money over me. And I have to stick with you eventually because I depend on you. You don't depend on me for anything. I just don't see how that will work out in the long run. I'm so glad that we're talking about this because this is something that I get asked a lot about. Well, what do you think about prenuptials? What does, and it's, it seems to bake in a, a structure, a piece that builds in a power difference. And it's, it's a self-protective move in a lot of cases. And then it gets put in place not through a conscious, explicit agreement, but under a, we've already been together for a while. Now, oh, by the way, I have this expectation or my family has this expectation of me that I'll do. And now I'm caught between loyalty to my family and the family wealth and my love intimate partner. So Ed, as couple therapists, now we have several challenges. One challenge is that we have somebody who structurally is still married to their family of origin. And that can't work, even if it didn't have anything to do with money. So there's that problem. There's a lack of individuation that we're marrying and you and I are a separate country now with separate, separate fiefdom. We decide our rules. We decide who gets in and who doesn't, right? That's how it should be. But in many situations, it isn't that way. We're not a sovereign union. There are other people who have saved because 
my parents still pull the purse strings for us. And I can't make decisions that put relationship first because our survival now is dependent on my us uh, doing things for my family or your family. Otherwise, we get cut off financially. So there's all sorts of issues with, don't you think, with finances and family that really can interfere with the launching and sustaining of, of a couple system. It is, it holds my attention continuously. And, you know, I end up working with a lot of family businesses. And so there's multiple generations involved in there. And it's like, well, I'm not going to leave the family business to go marry and create my own union. And there's, and so it's, what's the work that we do with the couple? What do we do multi-generational work with mom and dad and say like, Hey, look, what do you want here? Do you want the business or do you want a healthy relationship for your kids? And when you use your business and family business to control your kids, it's bad outcomes for the business and the kids long run. This is fascinating, Ed. I mean, you're a great person to talk to about this. I I didn't realize how great until today. I have couples from other cultures where culturally the family uh, believes they have a say and the kids believe that our first generation that the family has a say, or at least they're afraid of bucking that. And so there are also cultural permissions for this kind of messiness with finances. And there's cultural overlay that normalizes it, which makes it, again, very, very hard for the couple therapist to solve or help a couple solve their independence problem. And I think that it's with that cultural competency in mind is the Western model of independence and kind of clear boundaries between each generation is, is our model of what's a healthy relationship. And it doesn't make sense in other cultures, as I understand, like, can imagine. And I think that tension, I feel like as a professional, is less for me to have the specific right answer for the client, but more to help them to think critically and to make more explicit what is it that they actually want that will work for them than getting them to make that decision. Because I can't be the final arbiter of what's going to feel good in your relationship. Only you know what will feel ultimately good in your relationship. I was just I can provoke and ask questions and challenge, but and hold space for you to to have these difficult conversations and maybe ask the unaskable questions. But at the end of the day, it's your marriage and your family that you're going to live in, and you will live with the consequences of whatever decisions you make or choose not to make, not me. And that's how a PAC therapists are supposed to position themselves. I, I would also just add that I wouldn't consider other countries, even as American, other arrangements as being unhealthy. I would consider that being fine, only a problem if one partner is unhappy with it. So when people come to to us for couple therapy, the culture then takes a back seat to if one person's view of the arrangement is unfair, that's why they're coming. And so it's not a matter of healthy or unhealthy, it's a matter of one person unhappy considering the arrangement unfair. And then I think, okay, well, now we have a therapy session, right? Now now we have something that we can work with. But I do have people coming where I think the situation is unfair financially, but they don't. And so I shut up. That's the fun and challenge of all of this work, isn't it? Is like, we have our own values and what like for us would not work or fly in an intimate relationship. And yet we're asking them and they're saying, And both parties are saying, yeah, no, this part of doing it this way works for us. Well, okay. And I think that's what you're offering. And I appreciate you saying is we're not trying to 
go globally and say, well, this pattern or way of doing marriage is unhealthy and this one is. It's but if we have one person that's saying it's not working for me, then it's not working for both people. We got a problem. We got to figure out how can we get this to work for both people? Because if it's not working for both people, then it's not working. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Because we're treating the couple system, not the individuals, right? We're dealing with the couple system and the couple system is going to be out of whack because uh, one person is unhappy, which then causes a problem in the system itself. It doesn't matter which partner is unhappy. That concept is increasingly more familiar and, and embedded in my head, but what does that mean, the couple system? What, can we dive into that a little bit more? What does that mean, it's a couple system? So in systems thinking, there are small systems, large systems, large system would be a corporation, the country, um, a large group. Small system is a family, and even smaller is a couple. So a couple system being a dyadic system operates under certain rules, under certain expectations, even different than a family, although there are some similarities, which is unfortunate, by the way. And that couple system is greater than the sum of its parts. So we take individual psychology or psychological theories and they break down when we view a couple system because there's something unpredictable about a couple system in it is that it's phenomenological in ways we can't understand fully and is intersubjective in ways we can't understand fully because we're not in that orbit. And so we're studying a system that reacts to itself. It has individuals that come to the table with their history, and they may be predictable in some ways if we understand their developmental trajectory. But the ideas of attachment and so on have to be modified because the system is now a new entity in that it has its own its own life. So you and I are unskillful at handling each other properly. We're not good managers of each other. We're not masters. And so we start reacting to each other's um, expressions of distress or pain or complaint. And we react as threatened, right? Because it right. reminds us of some other person experience. And, and so then we respond in a way that threatens the other person. It's like a fast moving ball between both people. And because it isn't repaired in most cases, it uh, uh, continues to accrue in memory because of our survival instinct. So we're accruing threat memory and cues of facial expressions, of vocal cues and sounds, of gestures, of words and phrases, so that the system we begin to see is like infinity sign. It's reacting to itself and there's no longer cause and effect. Um, it's a circular in a way because they're in a loop and they right. can't get out because they're both responding reflexively, automatically, and then they get into a threat cycle. So that's where systems are really important. Here's the other important part. In systems, in looking at a couple, the wise therapist should be thinking there are no angels and there are no devils. It only looks like there's an angel and a devil. But in a system where there's one, there's always the other. Or there's one, there's always the other. And so we have to look in both directions or we'll be seduced by one partner or the other, or we'll be enthralled with one partner being the devil 
and misunderstand that the other person is Mr. or Mrs. Devil, that they picked each other, and that they're, they're birds of a feather. They just don't look it at the moment. So that's what systems in, in small part is. It, it becomes its, its own container, and it starts to drive behavior. Think of a family. You go to see your family for Thanksgiving, and then you, you just feel like you're in that role again as you were in your family of origin. That system oh, yeah. just pulled you back in. Or your high school high school reunion. Somebody calls you by your last name. It's like you're back in high school again. Yeah, oh yeah. that's what a system is. Well, and I, I love it, and I think you know it's so important for listeners to pick up on this. What Stan's talking about is not unique to Stan, but it's he's flushed it out a lot more than I think many other couples therapists. But his systems thinking is pretty common in couples family therapy. But I love the way that you talk about it. And, you know, I was thinking about this couple recently I started talking to where they're in that cycle of reactivity. And so he's the business owner. He went off to go start his own entrepreneurial business. The wife's all anxious about it. I don't like it. Don't do it. Well, he goes and does it anyways. And then he he's successful. So like, oh, okay, well, it's not so bad. Well, then fast forward a few years, he takes on a business partner and then the business partner upscounds with a bunch of money and the business reputation struggles. And now they're coming to me and saying, we need help. What do we do? And it would be very easy, I think, for many people to, in hearing this story, people are going to listen and say, what, they're either going to think he's the bad guy or she's the bad guy, depending on their own perspective. But what we see as professionals is neither of them are the good guy or the bad guy in this, but they were stuck in a loop where they didn't know how to tend to each other. And it just kind of kept getting worse and worse over the years. And so that's what the title of your book, In Each Other's Care, is so powerful is Couples miss that we're really in each other's care. This is the two-person system. And we've, you use the language, we got to be masters of each other's care. I think, is that the phrase you use? I have to be good at the animal I picked. If I picked a, a bucking bronco, I better learn to ride that bucking bronco and not complain that the bucking bronco I picked bucks. That's my fault. I'm supposed to learn how to ride that. I was attracted to that bucking bronco. I didn't want a mule. I wanted a lively, lively pony. So it's kind of unfair to take the, the lively pony and say, I don't know what to do with this pony. It's lively, but it's a little too lively. I'd like to, you know, get rid of it. Or somebody else, a couple therapists, you tame my pony for me. And that's how we are. That's how we are. And this is everybody, me included. We want these, we want our partners to be good at us, but we don't think we should have to do that with our partner. Study them, learn them, get a PhD in them. I know Ed so well, there's nothing he could do that I wouldn't know how to handle without using a stick or a whip. That's how good I am because I make it my career to learn him because I depend on him. He depends on me. Therefore, I have to work well with him or we can't survive well. We can't make things. We can't solve problems. Because I'm con- I consistently run into my incompetence, for which I blame Ed. <laughs> um, this is all of us. We're all fools in this way. The only thing is, is that we, we have the hubris to not see it or admit it. We're all angels and we're all devils. And we don't plan for our devils. We only plan for our angels. And that's a big mistake in the human primate world if we want to get along. And this really picks up on like that other part of what you talked about in the beginning of the interview is the, being a student of human nature. What really is the nature of humanity? And you know, these patterns are in, endemic, right? Like they're, 
not unique to any group of people. It's it's the whole human condition, no matter what part of the globe you happen to reside on. Is that that's what I'm picking up on? Yeah, well, I, I'm with Harari, who wrote Sapien, on on this matter. As wonderful of a species uh, we are, and of course, we're the ones who are reviewing and giving ourselves, you know, a critique. <laughs> Our great status. Right? I'm not sure other animals, would, if they could speak, would give us the same critique. But, or if our brethren, the, the other members of the genus that we wiped out or participated in wiping, uh, wiping out of the human uh, tribe would agree. But we are wonderful in a lot of things, especially the creation of things that don't exist because we can mentalize things that no other animal can. We can build things that no other animal can because we can imagine. We can create mythologies, including a relationship mythology. Animals don't have relationship mythologies. They have biology, they have primitive drives that they adhere to. They don't have a conscious mind that can come up with other options or other scenarios. They can't plan or predict, but we can. However, because of our survival instinct, which is acute as it should be, a lot of the features of the human brain, the human mind, are also bugs when it comes to love relationships because we can do terrible things in the name of love and we can be quite threatening. So this is why I say the human condition here is at fault. If we're to blame people, it's not you, it's not me, it's not because you're an avoidant in attachment, it's not because you're a narcissist, it's not because you're a borderline, it's because first and foremost, you're a human primate, which has its challenges, no matter where you are, in time or location. So this is very important because if we don't acknowledge that we are by nature racists, we otherize each other, we otherize our neighbor, we otherize anybody or anything that we cannot get along with, that we cannot get to be fully on our page, that operates in a way we don't understand, um, we will otherize. That is what we will always do unless we have principles, rules, values, governance that rein our behavior in, our natural behavior, which can be quite destructive. The same thing in a couple. I can be very destructive about meaning to, but if I'm scared enough, I don't care. If you're scared enough, you don't care. If you find me threatening, you certainly don't care. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. When we get to a certain level of threat or distress, values go out the window. Is that fair to say? Higher values. We get primitive. We get primitive and we start to, and this happens in the brain, we know that even with the smallest amount of glucocorticoids floating around in the brain under stressful situations, our brain changes. We become far less compassionate empathic. I don't care as much about your situation. I start gathering my energy to protect my interests. And that's when I will revert to a one-person system, which looks very dangerous to you. And you'll do the same because you're compelled to. So this is part of the human condition. 
We see it every day in our news feed. We've read about it in history. We know this, and yet we don't plan for it in the smallest unit of a society, the couple system, right? We don't plan for that and put in protections that keep us from doing the wrong thing when it feels like the easiest thing to do or the most expedient thing to do. So you're right, secure functioning is raising the bar to believe in something greater than ourselves, something that you and I create, wasn't created for us. We create it and we, we hold each other to a higher standard based on what's a good life, which is hard to do, as opposed to an easy life, which is what most people get and that's what they pay for and it's not much. And that's the consequences, right? Is uh, couples have to consciously and intentionally and continuously create, co-create their life together to be in sync, to check, touch base. Like you've used the word longevity, people being longevity oriented. This is a thing we see in financial planning all the time. People have a really hard time imagining themselves fully into the future and seeing the connections between this thing to this thing to this thing financially. And they wake up and they're in their late fifties and they're like, I don't know why we don't have enough money. Well. We got to have that long view picture while we're living the day to day. And that's a hard thing to do too, as humans for the most part. But if you don't make that conscious effort to cultivate that, you're going to be subject to the winds of life. That's And the winds of human nature. We are the winds of life. And that's why we pair bond partially to protect mm. ourselves from the, from the, the indifferent environment that surrounds us, that is the environment that's unpredictable and unkind many times. We have to be tight and create a system by agreement that protects us from the outside. But if the war is in our own home, in our own foxhole, that's Darwinian. That means we're just not going to make it. It cannot be in our own foxhole. We cannot be adversaries. We have to be allies because we live in an adversarial world. It's dumb, but we don't get it, see? I think in couples, coupling comes with so much expectation and memory from childhood, earliest childhood, and a kind of um, entitlement that is family-like. So uh, take the couple we were talking about where their their leadership is subordinated by their own doing, by keeping their family of origin at the top of the food chain. In systems, they have relegated themselves to a sibling subsystem, right? They cannot possibly have any power or authority or self-esteem. When in fact, they should be the new king and queen, the new emperors, the new generals. They are the bosses. They're the leaders. And that protects their self-esteem. That protects their sense of sovereignty. But they're not structurally thinking that way. They're not their own people. They belong to others. And so so that has its consequences for self-esteem, for leadership, for the couple. And they're more likely than not to act as siblings, of course, because they're now a sibling subsystem. So, But there are partners that sh- there is no family interference, but they still act like family, which is a mistake. And that's, and no other union really does that, right? Would tolerate that. Right. You know, a team would not tolerate that, yeah. A team, a healthy, high-functioning team would not tolerate that. And it's, I'm thinking about the anxious attachment pattern will typically give their leadership and authority up to the other partner. They'll 
compromise themselves because they, their lower view of themselves and higher view of others. And that plays perfectly with the partnering of a more avoidantly attached individual who has a higher view of themselves and typically a lower view of others. And now we've got this built-in inequality and secure functioning couples really see themselves as partners as equals and they can set aside culturally given hierarchy, money, status, beauty, what are those educational attainment? Like we all like, oh, well, this person has a doctorate. So they're more important than this person who has a high school education. In society, we do that and there's a place for that. We want to recognize people that have a doctorate versus people that have high school education for different roles. Like there's a good place for that hierarchy. But when that comes to roost at home and the intimate coupleship, that's a big problem. Is that? It is because I think there's another issue here and that is couples aren't faced with uh, reality in the same way. The reality is that you and I as a team, as a union, are stronger together than if we weren't. But that means we are pulling our own weight to hold up this union, which only contains two people. Therefore, we both have to carry the load to survive. Survival is a mutual interest, not just mine, not just yours. We both have a mutual interest to survive. We both have a mutual interest to thrive. That makes us interdependent. We both have the same things to lose, supposedly, and the same things to gain. Therefore, we have to work together or we can't work. It's too unfair. And I have to carry the load because you want to be a passenger. But we're both executives. We're both in charge. There is nobody else but the two of us. That's being an adult. That's knowing the reality of the situation. It's not a luxury. And people in Ukraine know this. People who are fighting to survive know this. They work together. You can be sure they're not arguing about some of the petty things that we argue about. Those are not even on the table. They have bigger fish to fry. They want to survive. And that's the great leveler, right? We all want to right. survive. That's a great leveler. And that's, you know, I had a conversation with Edtronic once and was introducing this idea to him. And he argued with me on an attachment level why that wasn't sound. But I still want to go back and have a further conversation with him after I've thought this through quite a bit. Because I think it does. <laughs> I think it actually does. It's just not in the parent-child situation but in the adult situation i think it does that there is at bottom a survival matter of pair bonding if we're doing it in the long run i'm not talking about you know fleas so so i think context is everything i mean a fundamental human need is to live for us as an organism to keep on living right and when we face these external threats it behooves us to partner with another person and be close and work together it increases our chances exponentially. So attachment and survival, that is connected. Absolutely connected. Yeah. Uh, Attachment is survival. Attachment is survival, right. Why is breaking up hard to do? Because the attachment system is a biological mandate of I can't quit you that goes all the way back to the survival of the infant. If mommy dies, I die. If you leave me, I die. If I leave you, I die. There's a part of us that feels that existential threat to our survival. We think it's love, but it's actually a very primitive existential matter of survival that nature built in to the glue that keeps us together, even when we shouldn't be. 
And so that's like that's not always consciously playing in our mind, but it's always a, a force. It's it's kind of like gravity. Like I'm not always aware of gravity, but it's always working on me. And our need to survive is a psychological force that's always there, whether we're conscious of it or not. But it's part of what drives us to stay bonded. And then when our our pair bonded partner betrays that trust or that relationship or that I'll, I'll be there, that's what sends us reeling into such great distress. Absolutely. And many times, understandably, we'll do anything not to lose that partner, even though they betrayed us. That's the attachment system working. And like gravity, you know it exists when you try to defy it. Oh, oh, I like that. That's a helpful way to think. It's like, yeah, you don't know gravity exists when you're just going about it, but it's when you like try to jump and you come back down. It's like when you try to jump and stay up. Yeah, right. Or if, but if you start flirting with the another person, well, you're going to see the attachment bond, the threat up to the relationship is going to get exposed very quickly. And this is part of that maturing relationship is being able to be focused on the intimate partnership and to set boundaries between you, you, your partner and the others. I think the maturity part is getting to a place of understanding what is actually important. What is actually important that what we think of as important often has to do with self-interests only. Our ability to unionize and our ability to commit ourselves to another person doesn't make us any less selfish. We're still selfish. We're doing it for selfish reasons. It just, that selfishness includes you. So in secure functioning, I selfishly have to take care of you, your interests and your concerns and fears at the same time I'm considering mine or I will pay for it. I will selfishly pay for it, right? There's no way I won't. So I must, in order to take care of myself, I have to take care of you at the same time, or I will have trouble. I will cause myself trouble. That is a a pro-social way of operating that is still pro-self and pro-social. Do you see? Sometimes I've gotten stuck in my own head even about like, well, I have to kind of kill myself. I have to kill my self-interest in the best interest of the other person, right? Like the self is bad, you're selfish, and that's a bad outcome too. So it sounds like- No, we can't kill the self. We, we need to understand the self, work with the self, and recognize what the self wants, and then coordinate it with the self of the other, and recognize the other has their own self, their own wants, their own needs, their own- when, when people, and by the way, I just want to clarify because we're in, into an area where people get confused with language. Uh, killing the self uh, can be confused with Buddhism, which has a different meaning than what I'm talking about. And that's still a one person system, by the way. Buddhism is a one person. The idea of getting rid of the self, no self, oh. is not an interpersonal idea. Mm, It is an enlightenment idea of discovering what is true, what is real, right? No self, right? That's not, that has nothing to do with interpersonal relationships, because all you have to do, Buddhist or not, be in an interpersonal relationship, and let's see how you keep a no self. People are the hardest things, and when we go live, it's even harder. So there's no way to kill off the self. Uh, You have to protect self and other in a two-person system, self and other. And that's the challenge because under many conditions, we only want to protect ourselves, which in a two-person system is self-harming because if I only take care of myself, you're compelled to do the same thing. And now we're adversaries, you see? And that's why it's self-harming. If we're interdependent, anything I do to you is going to happen to me. There's 
There's a lot of people that think I'm so selfless. All I do is think about the other person. All I do is take care of the other person. And that's called codependency. And so how do we understand that in what we're talking about? Does that, are they living not in reality then of their own self, their own self needs? Well, they're not living in a truly symmetrical way in a relationship that is based on terms and conditions. They're living a childhood need. I have to focus on you to get what I want. I have to give you everything in order to hope to get something. That's codependency. It's a one direction only. Interdependency is I do this, you do this, we do this, or we don't make it. You can't do this. I can't do this. So don't. You must do this because I have to do this. So do it. In other words, we hold each other to the same standards, right? Um, otherwise, we're weaker for it, both as individuals and also as a union. We can't do that. So we're held to the same standards. We're equal participants in the legislation part of our relationship. We co-construct our ethics. We co-construct our culture. We co-construct our rules of engagement. Um, this isn't done for us in secure functioning, at least. This is, I mean, it's such a powerful lens, Stan, that you're sharing. And it's, I feel like there's so many voices about how we should be in relationship with each other. And the voice that you're sharing resonates deeply for me. I mean, it, it's been my own journey of searching how to be in relationship. And, and so hearing what you're describing, if I'm getting it close to right, is there's myself, there's my wife's self, and then there's those shared relationship we're creating. There's almost three, it's like three entities, and we're responsible for all three of them, each of us. She's responsible for herself. And she's responsible for our relationship. And she's responsible to me. And conversely, I'm responsible for myself. I'm responsible for the relationship. And I'm responsible to her. Is that? Yes, which raises the complexity of thinking, right? It's a higher moral level of, think of reasoning. My moral reasoning includes myself and you. Good for me and good for you. If it's not good for you, it won't work. If it's not good for me, it won't work. It has to be good for both of us which means we have to think in terms of win-win. We have to think and organize and solve problems in a way that suits both of us or we're causing ourselves trouble, right? We cannot think any other way. And so coming back to this couple that I highlighted that represents a pattern that I see is the business owner. Like, I want to go start this business. The other person doesn't want that to happen. They go off and start the business. They're only thinking about themselves. They're not, they haven't really taken into consideration. They haven't found something that mutually works for both of them in this journey. And, you know, there's so many money decisions that seem to get made where it's like, I'm only thinking about my best interest. I can't really imagine why you're so concerned about this or don't like it or don't want it. I'm stuck in my own way. And you don't I'm trust me. You don't trust me. You won't come along with me anyway. So why bother? But you really haven't taken the time to get in and understand the other person's view from their point of view and to consider what that means to them. And likely they're struggling also to see why this goal, objective, financial desire you have is so important to you. And it's the shared moral responsibility to understand each other's motives and needs around why you're doing or not doing things with money. Here's the other thing. If I'm the, the person, male or female, that's, that is talking that way, I'm just going to make this decision unilaterally. The idiocy to think that I'm going to get away with that without, without downstream effects is insane. There has to be downstream effects if I'm dealing with a, an average human being, right? It will come out. 
Yes, there's no way it won't. And so to think that I can do that without any blowback or consequences is just stupid. I don't seem to know where I am. I don't think I understand the system that I'm in. This is not a solo sport. It's a team sport, right? And so there are consequences for doing this no matter where you are in the world, unless the agreement is otherwise, right? If the agreement is otherwise, and we're happy that this is fine. But anytime, anytime someone's rights are taken away from them, and it's not a dictatorship, or slavery, they're going to want justice at some point. Right? Gray divorce, you know, we went through a spate of gray divorce, and that's another generation, boomer generation, that operated under different rules of uh, complementarity, complementarity uh, where the male has all the rights and the uh, little female stays at home raising the children and so on. Right. Why was there such amount of uh, gray divorce? Because of the amount of injustice that had accrued in those relationships. The men and women that decided to get out, mostly women, you know, said, I'm done with this. I'm through with this. I, uh, this I've been doing for so long and, it, and my life was subjugated and no more. And so the chickens come home to roost eventually when when the time, you know, tides change in, in the culture and equality is expected, um, then yeah. people look oh, yeah. back at their lives and think, you know what, this sucks. Oh, I, I mean, I, I see it, you know, it's, I've had this wave of young couples, you know, in their early 30s to mid 30s, about to get married, mi newly married, and they're coming to me and saying, how do we do this money thing together? How do we do it fairly? How do we understand each other's needs? We want to do it right. And I start asking them some questions about, well, what did you see in your family? And inevitably, they're saying, it wasn't fair. It wasn't just. One person was abrogating to the other. And we don't want that. And so to me, kudos to them for recognizing that and saying, we don't know the answer, but we're going to find someone to help us sort this out. Because when men and women can partner as equals and truly see each other and work that, the injustices that you're talking about don't accrue and come to roost. And you end up with the divorce 20, 30 years down the road. So being proactive is huge. Let me say, because I know we're, we're getting ready to end yeah. probably, but, but let me say something real quickly and see if you, what you think. In terms of you and I, let's just you and I, we're going to go yeah. into relationship together and our purpose, so we're talking about vision and purpose, right? Our purpose in financially is to be financially solvent, is to save money for emergencies so we feel safe and secure is to make money to do the things we wish to do, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. we're both co-conspirators in that, right? That's our, we have to have a, a shared purpose and a shared vision at any moment could be, we wanna buy a new house. We wanna go on a vacation that we've been waiting to do. We want to invest in, right? But we want to do this, right? That is how couples, all unions have to operate. We constantly have to have a shared purpose, shared goal, and a shared vision for where we're going. Otherwise, we're going to operate in ways that are one person oriented. I'm just going to buy and spend. Well, why am I buying and spending? Because I don't have anything to lose. I think we just have a limitless amount of money and we don't have any goal. So again, understanding the purpose of unions is to have a purpose. Otherwise, why do it? What am I going to get out of that? <laughs> oh, you'll be loved. Well, that sucks because I'm not loved today. You don't like me. You're angry with me today. Where does that go? Okay, so unless people consciously focus on what they're doing, do we have a purpose in this area? Do we have a vision for this area? Do we have something we both want? That puts us on the same team in every right. area. 
every single area. And that's when people start to play well together if they're going to, if they're in good faith. And there's nothing more pleasurable than to co-create stuff. There's nothing more pleasurable than to make stuff and solve problems and not try to solve each other. There's nothing more sublime. And people are actually missing the greatest part of unionizing. I'm going to fill in something that you didn't quite say is it's not love in unionizing. It's creating together is actually far more gratifying than the, the experience of love. And we're not dismissing the experience of love. Love is a wonderful thing. Which creates love, by the way. That is earned love. Right. We're earning love every day by what we do and what we don't do. We're earning respect and admiration by what we do and what we don't do. We're not just waiting for that bus to come. Gee, it's been years until I felt anything good about you. Um, That's stupid. We do things. That misses the mark. We create purpose that creates emotion. Oh, that's a great way to bring this conversation around to a close. We create purpose that creates emotion, right? Like Yes, not the other way around. Not the other way around. So and I'm t- as a financial planner, for people listening to this, I'm saying that's why we do financial planning. We're defining the purpose of your life, where you're wanting to go. We're helping you get clearer about that. So you have some direction. You're, you're seeing yourself on the same team. You're able to balance what you need today for what you want in the future. You're thinking about it. And all of that experience will foster a sense of love and connectedness for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not undermine yeah. it. It's a couple's project, even if one person ends up being more front-facing than the other. Both are executives. The bottom line uh, stops with both of them. They are, if they lose, they both lost. If they win, they both won. Not because the other one was asleep at the wheel, right? They're both responsible for the financial outcome of the house. I've got to say this because we're right here and it, it, I see this all the time. It makes me so crazy is that one partner abdicates any financial responsibility. It's this person's financial responsibility for this, that, and the other. It's like, that is the most dangerous thing you can do. It's the most uncomfortable thing in the long run. If for anyone that's halfway paying attention, they shouldn't want all that responsibility. If you're in an intimate partnership, you are both responsible for all of it. Now- And it's incredibly annoying too. Yeah, it's just one person might be really doing the target shopping and paying the bills. The other person might be responsible for the investment management, but you're in this together. You're co-executives. One person does impacts the other. And if you're not in a shared vision, and able to be transparent with each other about all of it, you're at risk. You're not secure functioning in your relationship. And it just, it's so hard for couples have never seen other, their parents work together on the household finances. So they have no internalized vision of a couple doing money together. But it's like, if you're doing sex together, you're doing money together. Come on, people, let's do this. So sorry, my soapbox. And that's a good soapbox. Yeah, thank <laughs> you so much, Ed. Stan, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and have this incredible conversation. As we wrap up the conversation, where can people find your work? What's the best way to connect with you? All that kind of fun stuff. The best way to find me is at uh, thepactinstitute.com. That's P-A-C-T, pactinstitute.com. If you're a clinician of any kind and you want to be trained in this approach, which is frustratingly difficult, but eventually a lot of fun. You can find our training schedules all throughout the world. We train online. And if you're a couple interested in coming to a couple's workshop, my wife, Tracy, and I do those all the time. And we are doing one in Portugal in person next year. So you might want to sign up for that. Oh, that's powerful. You know, Stan, 
I've benefited greatly from your training and going through it. And, I, you know, I continue to go back and read your books. So I'm excited to continue to see your writing, see your, your post on LinkedIn. Your conviction and clarity for which you talk about couples is, is so helpful. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Hawaii with Tracy. Thank you. I'm watching her. She's working right now and sweetly staying over there so she doesn't, uh, the sound doesn't interfere because she's doing work as well. <laughs> That's awesome. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.